0: This is a Headgum Podcast.
1: Vulture's Good One podcast is sponsored by Visible, a new phone service that gives you unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second, on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just $4 a month, all in. And welcome to Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Vulture Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Our guest this week is a brilliant comedian, one-time host of Vulture's What the Tuck, a RuPaul's Drag Race podcast, and future TV star Joel Kim Booster, as he'll be starring alongside Kyle Penn in the new Mike Shore-produced NBC comedy, Sunnyside, next fall. We're going to be talking about his set on The Late Late Show with James Corden from January of this year, and just how much has changed since Joel's first late-night set on Conan in June of 2016, both as we discussed for comedy generally and Joel's comedy specifically. In those two and a half years, which is a lifetime in a young comedian's career, Joel went from a, a charming, strong joke writer to the undeniably wholly unique stand-up he is today. It's also during this period that Joel shaped his on-stage persona of a hot idiot. I should note, Joel is not an idiot, but he is hot. And we discuss how that plays into his stand-up on the episode. So, here is Joel Kumbuster.
0: Thank <laughs> you. I should have peed first. I'm so excited. I am so excited mostly to get to perform here in L.A., my home. I love this city. It's so exciting. My one beef with L.A. is that it is a driving city, and when I moved here, I had to start driving for the very first time, and boy, am I bad at it. Uh, It is rough, and when you're a bad driver with this face, it's a real nightmare, let me tell you. It is no fun. I feel like I've seen every version of, of course, face in L.A., and I don't appreciate that face. I don't appreciate that face one bit. Every time I see it, I just want to roll down my window and be like, excuse me, sir. No, no, no. I'm not a bad driver because I'm Asian. I'm a bad driver because I won't wear my glasses, and I text. Okay? (laughs) It's a personal choice. I don't want to be good at this. I will die in my Nissan Sentra. (laughs) It's just, driving is so hard, you know? Like, there's so many places you're supposed to look, and I can't be bothered. I've just got cooler stuff going on up here, you know? I, I won't. I love LA, the people here are wild though. You guys care about a lot of things that I don't care about. Uh, Recently, I got in trouble in my own home for trying to kill a spider. My friend uh, was like, no, Joel, if you spare the creature, it will kill the other bugs in your apartment. And I was like, well, that seems worse. I don't want to work from within the bug community to get rid of the bugs, you know? Like, it's so nefarious. Like, what am I, a member of the Reagan administration? You know, like, terrible, okay. I'm so glad some of you understood that joke, because I did not I'm very stupid, you see, but I own it. I find a lot of people these days don't own their stupidity. Like, I am constantly having to end conversations with my friends by being like, oh, I'm sorry, I don't think either of us read enough books to be talking about this, okay? Why are we arguing about the estate tax? You're a dog walker and I'm a musical theater major. (laughs) I was raised in a very stupid community, so I don't really like to go home very often anymore. The only reason I do go home is because my older sister, she still lives there, and she started having babies, and I love being an uncle, and I love spending time with them and just sort of soaking up all the Instagram engagement that I can while they're young. (laughs) Um, I also think it's really important to spend time with them because I don't think that kids are in the cards for me personally. Like, don't get me wrong, I think it's so great that there are so many gay dads in the country. Give it up for gay dads. Um, But I also think it's wrong. I do, um, and, and that was a trap, and you fell for it. So here's my thing, is I believe that gay men, we were put here as population control, and I think every time God above sees two gorgeous men raising a child, he's like, oh, no, 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 no. you have misunderstood the assignment. Uh, <laughs> And it must be so frustrating for him because we're so much better at it, you know? Like, just put yourself in his shoes for a second. Like, you've got this national park and it is overrun with deer. So you release some wolves into the neighborhood to get rid of some of the deer and then the wolves start raising high-functioning deer, you know? Oh, my God, they named that deer Atticus and they've opened up a Montessori school! It's out of control! I... I clearly, I don't actually believe that I'm joking. Although, my dad did have two sons and they both turned out gay. And I don't think there's a clear sign from God that he is done with this bloodline, you know? just had enough boosters for one generation. Thank you. The real reason I think I won't be having kids anytime soon is that I am very, very single. Stop freaking out. Um... (laughs) It's, it's all right, though. I'm, I'm out there. I'm on all the apps in L.A. Right now, my apartment is just a revolving door of strangers, and uh, that's fine for me. Some of my friends are a little concerned. They're like, Joel, you don't know these people. Like, aren't you worried that one of them could murder you? And it's like, yeah, that's a pretty big draw for me, honestly. <laughs> like, because my thing is, if I've been murdered, I've still been picked, you know? And that, ultimately, is the point of dating. Either way, I get to stop, you know? And what a relief. I recently went on a pretty promising first date though. Uh, He took me to a Mexican restaurant here in LA that had something I had never experienced before. It had table side guacamole. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's just a little cart that your server rolls up next to the table and they make the guacamole right there in front of you and I don't get it. (laughs) I don't understand why we're pulling back the curtain on guacamole, you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why here? Why now? There's no theater to guacamole. It's not an interesting process. In fact, it's kind of a distraction. I'm sitting there across from my date trying to walk him through my student loan debt. Meanwhile, Danielle can't get the pit out of the avocado. And it's just like... <laughs> There's no mystery there either, Danielle. We all know how guacamole is made. Of all the things to bring back out of the kitchen and reveal to us before our very eyes, why the guacamole. Here's an idea, Danielle. Bring out the lava cake and show me how you got the lava in there. <laughs> so the real mystery.
1: <laughs>
0: so. Long story short, I did not get a second date.
1: Uh, you guys have been so fantastic. I'm Joel Kim Booster. Have a great night. So I'm here with the comedian behind that set you just heard, Joel Kim Booster. Thank you for being here. Hello.
0: Um, it's so funny because I was thinking, I know I gave you the option of the two, of all the late night sets, basically. I There's the closer of the cordon set. I... Sort of half retired after Corden, mm-hmm. and I cannot really remember the joke anymore. <laughs> it's fine. We'll talk. Well, the, well okay, great. will talk I, I broadly I, about that one. I think
1: I could sort of get there if I needed to. Tell I think it it'll be today. fine because I think that one you don't have to tell today. But it is—it's a performance. Dri- that part is performance driven. But let's. We'll we we'll, right. we'll
0: build to it. I'm always just terrified that I'm going to be doing stand-up and like see tableside guacamole like in the audience. So, like I'll be at a comedy club where they do it, and I'll feel sort of obligated. Yeah, to do the joke. Um, <laughs> like the audience like do I, table. And I won't gu- be able to do it. I actually w- I literally was in um, Mexico this weekend. Ordered guacamole at a restaurant. It was tableside. Said nothing was sitting at a table with two guys who have never seen who, who are unfamiliar with my job at all sure. and like don't give a shit about, and I was like relieved and then someone walked by and was like oh my god it's so funny that you're sitting getting table side guacamole <laughs> i thought you hated this and i was like this
1: is amazing <laughs> but let's let's back up a little bit so This was recorded in 2019. Your first late-night appearance was on Conan in June 2016. Wow, yeah. So that's about two and a half years. So I just want to touch lightly on the Conan set and specifically the joke.
0: So as you can imagine, it was a little weird growing up in the Midwest with this face and that family. I mean, I literally knew I was gay before I knew I was Asian. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, And, uh... It came as quite a shock when i finally found out i'm what you know like
1: uh but it's so what did that joke mean to you um or for your sort of stand-up
0: art i i'm not even sure like when the genesis of that joke occurred because it is a real it is just like a true fact about me like i really did that is like um you know a big part of my background and it is sort of succinctly sets up like a huge part of my background which is a you know i am asian they nobody needs background on that they <laughs> sure. can see it um I'm gay and I'm adopted and that sort of just encompasses all three of those um signifiers in a joke and I think uh, I mean truly I believe that is just something I've been saying to people in conversation for years probably yeah. since college I've had that line because it's just like um like people will be like oh you're adopted and that's so cool and like <laughs> or like they'll ask questions that I don't know it's just like a it was like a party trick for yeah. so, for a while and it was this was like even before I ever thought like stand up or comedy was like available to me (laughs) um so yeah i think that it just was something that i would say in conversation and then eventually slipped it in on stage and it worked because it 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 would always get a laugh like in conversation and i don't write um i don't write anything word for word down i I do most of my writing on stage and so a lot of it is even at the beginning oh yeah So much of it is trial and error. Like when I was doing stand-up in Chicago the first year, I didn't even... I was so bad at just the sort of the artistry of stand-up and like the mechanics of stand-up. I didn't know you were allowed to do jokes more than once. I So I did a five-minute set the first time I did stand-up, did really well... In fact, that joke might have been in there that uh, I I don't exactly remember most of the jokes that I did in that first set. And then over the course of several months would do like more and more sets and do like five to eight minute sets at shows and would write a new five minute set or a new eight minute set every single time because I, I truly didn't know I was allowed. I thought people would like know i yeah. don't i don't know how i thought at the that early of a stage being essentially an open mic that the word would spread that yeah. i had used the same joke in two different
1: bars but um yeah i grossly misunderstood the assignment yeah so then by this point which is you know you've been doing comedy for a while you've learned you're allowed to repeat jokes <laughs> What? In fact, that is honestly, I, I am a masochist and I read at all of my YouTube
0: comments um, occasionally. And that is the, I so, so much of the hate is so over the top that you can't even be affected by it because yeah. it's just like, they don't even seem like real human beings after a while when they're spewing so much hate. And I think it's younger people and people who are only experiencing me on YouTube and um, where they're like, wait, he said this joke in a different thing. Because the thing is, is I've, I've been on television doing stand up in a lot of different countries as yeah. well and they all sort of end up on youtube and i never think about them ending up on youtube when i'm doing them i'm i'm very aware of like legally what material i'm allowed to reuse in different contexts and um sort of standards and practices wise because here's the thing about all of my late night clips it, i It is representative of me in a sense of how I am as a comedian. But the reason I don't do late night more is because it is very hard for me to find five minutes of material that strings together that I am allowed to say on television. It is very clean material. It is very clean, television ready. And some of it I even have to fight for still. And so it is like... Frustrating to read people be like, "Oh, he only has the same five minutes," and it's like, "Bitch, listen to my album if you want like yeah. an hour of material of mine, or come and see me live." Like, I write a new hour a bit, a bit, essentially every year. It's yeah. just most of it can't go on television.
1: So when you write, it's you you're riffing on stage. You then record it and listen back, or you just yeah. Um, I'm a voice memo uh,
0: queen. I, I I have my little phone on the stool, recording everything, and I do I tend I don't tend to listen to every set. Uh, immediately i will eventually like get to the point because i have a fairly good memory it's like the one um like trick and, and thing that I was blessed with is that I have a very, very good memory. Um, and so I can mostly remember everything, but there are little things that get lost, like little inflections or little like, um, throwaway lines that I'll forget about. And I'll go back, I'll come back to, usually I'll listen to my sets on planes, um, when I'm getting ready to headline at a club and I'll be like, Oh my God, I totally forgot about this, like the spider bit yeah. in the cordon set. It's something that I said in Boston in June of like 2018. And, um, uh, Lisa Traeger, who is a a friend and a, a I, I, an amazing comedian and someone I look up to a lot, told me once that she tries to leave every headlining weekend at a club with at least one new joke, which is um, fairly conservative. Yeah. I think for so there are people who probably do it a lot more. But that really um she told me that early and I try to do that now. And the spider and and sometimes I have stuff at the ready that I'm like, oh, I want to try this and it, it it coalesces into a bit. And then sometimes I'm like, fuck, I have to think of something to like write about. And the spider bit was that for yeah. me. And it was like just in Boston. I was like, oh, okay, I'll try this f- stupid shit about spiders. And then as I was preparing to put this set together and scrounging for material that was clean enough to be on television, I was like listening back to those sets. And I was like, oh my God, I truly did those, that joke in Boston that weekend and then never, never did yet, it again. Yeah. Uh, until I started doing it again in the lead up to this cordon set.
1: So the first joke in it is the bad at driving joke? Yes. Which is you have you had an earlier bad at driving joke. Yes. <laughs> which um is a joke you cannot say on television. No. How how's this one different? How did this one
0: Um so I guess like the the first one? was was coming more from just, like, playing on the stereotype. It was, like, backwards. Because it was, like, I knew that the stereotype existed about Asians being bad drivers. And I was, like, you know, sort of... At that point when I was writing a lot of jokes, sort of playing with stereotypes and playing with like, inverting them and sort of subverting them, that's where that came from. And it sort of came from, like... And this was, like, even pre... There's, like, sort of a funny online... If you're an online person, like, especially on gay Twitter, like, the idea is is that game yays can't drive and this was pre this but it was sort of like it's that was sort of the germ of it of of like what if i'm not a bad driver because i'm asian but i'm a bad driver because i'm gay and sort of talking about dick sizes and blah 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 um and it's still one of my favorite jokes yeah um this one was much more a reaction to moving to la and and really experiencing that look that i talk about in the set which is making eye contact with someone and and seeing the rec and recognizing in their face the like oh of course. Yeah. Um, and in fact, I think one time early in LA driving, I cut somebody off or did something and I saw him mouth the words, of course. <laughs> and I, and it is like the deep, like awfulness of like being like, oh my God, I just confirmed something for that person. Yeah. And like the theater of it, of just like, and of the, how unfair it is that like, no, like, you don't know my background. You don't know that, like, I'm bad at this because I'm a millennial. <laughs> like, not, I'm bad at this because I'm a bad person, not because, uh, like, whatever you associate with Asians. Like, and so that, that joke really, like, came from
1: that place. It's interesting because though it is, it, it's clearly about that one thing, it, from hearing you talk about it, it it's similar to conversations you've had about Rep, what people say in comments and YouTube channels and representation yeah. and, and wasn't mean and to so doing it on a late night show is sort of like a way of talking about isn't it I'm this a way of talking about it without talking about it. yeah absolutely I found an earlier clip of you doing this joke uh-huh. the only major changes is you say to get
0: better at driving I will die in this Honda okay
1: <laughs> that's because um, in the earlier
0: version of the joke I had not bought my Sentra yet. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm, I think the, the earlier one is from when I was in Melbourne for whatever reason I was driving, I was like still renting back yeah. then. And I, I, had, I have since bought a Nissan Sentra, which is so, for some reason funnier to me. Yeah. Um, than a Honda. I think cause specificity always is funnier. Yeah. And uh, just th- even going the extra step of n- not just a Nissan, but a Nissan Sentra. There's also a uh, consonants of the end. Yes, that is, <laughs> that is much better. Uh, I don't know. It, it also might, you know what? Thinking about it now, I might've changed it because of Australia because I, I, Maybe I tried it there and they don't have Nissans. I don't know. Yeah, There's there's a lot. I've deeply, that was two days after I stepped off a plane in Melbourne for the first time. So I was probably feeling very crazy.
1: The other change is instead of, uh, in the Corden set, you say, I think I don't like wearing my glasses, but in the Melbourne version, you say, it's
0: because I have bad night vision and I text, okay?
1: Yeah. Um.
0: This, this, I changed those to the reasons I'm bad at driving. A lot. And the reason I changed it from night vision to glasses is because... As I've sort of shaped this character or version of myself, it goes. It it feeds more directly into the idea of I'm a bad driver because I'm a bad person. Yes, rather than something about me that I can't control, like um, night vision. Because honestly, <laughs> I do have bad night vision, and in fact, I in a few years I won't be able to drive at night. Um, it's getting to the point yeah. where I, I it's I'm a danger to people uh, by by driving at night, and that is so. That's like the real thing. That yeah. is like. More more like when I said it on stage for the first time when I was workshopping that joke, I was like going to re- I was going to the real well. Mm-hmm. Um, and but as I was like thinking about it from this sort of POV of the character, I was like, oh, no, it needs to be something that is something I can control. And, yeah. it, and like the idea of someone like refusing to wear their glasses because they're they make them look ugly. Like there's it tells like a very specific yes. story, I think. If you really want to think about it, texting is is obvious, and and not and refusing to wear your glasses. Both those things, I think, play into a, paint a, a bigger, a better picture, a clearer picture than night vision. So bugs. The next
1: joke is bugs. Yes,
0: uh, this was a this was a fight to actually get this on because it's political in a way. Is it was it because
1: for the politics? It's the event? Roy
0: Cone. Yeah, the Roy Cohn of it at the end really um, was. They were like, a we don't know that anyone will get it, and b. It is like AIDS adjacent, like AIDS crisis adjacent. And it just is so esoteric in a way that like it didn't feel like worth trying to put in. But for some reason, I was like, it was very important to me for that end part of the joke to get in. And I don't know why. You
1: can tell the audience does not get it.
0: No, no, no. And that's why you, and it's a cheat. It's a cheat to be like, I'm so glad some of you laughed at that or something like that. Yeah. And it, get, it, it does slide into like the stupid stuff pretty well. Um, but it is like a cheat. I, I it's a pet peeve of mine, and I try to do it as little as possible when something doesn't land. But I hate the like, oh, you guys hated that one, or yeah. oh, uh, it's that's new, still working. You know, like yeah. any editorializing on stage about jokes, we all do it. Every comedian does it. I do it. I did it last night at the Improv in Irvine. You know, like we all do it. But it is like something that, like, if you fall back on it too much, it can become a crutch because they audiences really almost always if they're. Rooting for you. If they're on your side, we'll laugh at that editorialization. Yeah. Um but yeah, so using that in the joke, I, I I was like in my mind, I was like, I can justify this because it's transition into the next yeah. joke.
1: Best case scenario it works. Unlikely, but best case, worst case scenario doesn't work, which then seems like oh, I'm setting up the yeah. thing anyway. Exactly. You've said that it takes a smart person to play stupid. I th- Think so? Yes, you've said that, that, that does sound. Like I know you've said. <laughs> <I've> said. <laughs> I know you've said. You've said this on a podcast. Yeah. Um, What's the value of say having your smartest joke or having a smart joke before it? Explain that a little bit further as it transitions here. Why is important that this audience goes like, "Oh, I'm about to go into this stupid stuff." Let me make sure they know this is a smart person.
0: Yeah, I guess for me, like it's it's like a signal I think to people because it is an esoteric joke. It's not a joke that. Uh, you know i'm I'm lucky enough to be at a point in my career where I can referentially like play in a space where I don't feel beholden to make sure that every single joke every is for every single person in the audience and so like for me especially in a five minute set that is going to be seen by millions of people I was like i I do sort of want a little bit of who I am as a person to like peek through and so it's a it's a little bit of a signal there and i think it's a little bit of a, a a way to make sure that they know i'm in on the joke of my own stupidity and like i have always been not like intellectually um anxious but like i i've always been a person that has has centered like Knowing all the things I don't know, or or Mm -hmm. knowing how much I don't know, I read a shit ton, and I know there's uh, that I'm an intelligent person, but I'm very not. Well, I don't like to big dog people in that way, and I don't like to like go in being like I'm an. It's just there's something like I'm. I'm much more uh, pensive about the a lot of things than I than I think a lot of the internet has made a lot of people, and like that's sort of the point of the stupid joke is like is what I see is like people in my friend group, really, who are intelligent people, who we're, um, like, being so willing to, like, put themselves out there intellectually in a way that I find so, like, can't we all just, like, step back for a second and, like, ask more questions? Yeah. And, like, sort of, like... Not seem like they know the answer. Yeah, like, like, turn it in your... Like, sort of let things sit and marinate in your brain um, in a private way. I guess, like, this is my thing. Like, certainty is a poison on the internet yeah. for me. Like Twitter, especially, I think like everyone has to go in and have their, th- their, their statement be, and be certain about what they believe and why they believe it. And like, it is so weird. Cause I'm, I don't know. I, I find like, I'm not like I believe this about Venezuela, but I'm like, but I'm not I, I would never like deign to like shoot it out onto the Internet with
1: certainty because there's still so much I don't know. I related to it in so much as when I became a journalist and started getting jobs and working at like a magazine where I was like, oh, these are who the smart people are. The yeah. smart people are like they've read all the things and they know this and they reference books and I would only yeah, reference yeah, yeah. The Simpsons or whatever. And I imagine there as you get further and further into comedy, you're sort of met with these sort of smart comedians, regardless of how smart they are, but they are like their brand is how they're smart comedians or they're like, they believe the whole, like we're philosopher kings or whatever. the hell. Is this sort of rooted in how you feel around comedians? And also in the last few years where like comedy is important, Uh what does it mean for you to be like, I'm going to be stupid on stage?
0: I think, I mean, it's so important to me because like, You think about what, like, we're constantly confronted and asked to think about, like, what it is we're actually doing here, comedians, and, like, we're in this sort of proliferation of, like, festivals where we're all together, and, like, the internet where we're all sort of thrown in together and asked to analyze and, like, question, and I do think that there's value in, like... It, it, a lot of people, I think, want to have it both ways where they want to be Carlin and they want to be the philosopher king and they want to be like, what I'm doing here is important and I'm spitting truth. And then uh, when faced with any sort of outside criticism yeah. from people who aren't in the comedy world or something like that, um, they, they really balk at that. And they're
1: like, it's just it's just a joke. Yeah. And and Dave Chappelle. I've like, always really thought about Dave Chappelle where Dave Chappelle wants to be like, I'm, I'm just a silly guy still. And then he's like, please take me as seriously as you would take yeah. anyone on earth.
0: And for me, it's really hard <laughs> to square those two things. And so I've sort of, dis- like, uh, I, I sort of split the difference, I think, a little bit. Because the thing is, is it's really hard to intellectualize why you're laughing at something. And, like, I, you know, we talk about this all the time. Like, other comedians, especially early in my career, I would get the criticism of, like, oh, you're just going on stage and being gay. And like, you know, it's persona, it's yeah. persona, it's not jokes. Like write a joke, write a joke, write a joke. And now, you know, I'm at a point in my career where it's truly my jokes per minute are pretty fucking up there <laughs> yeah. um, on stage. And, and that a part of that is New York and what it does to you. But I think like f- I was so obsessed with making sure that I had written the setup punchline and that it was a pure joke. And then if I ever got whiff of something in my set where I was, where I didn't understand why they were laughing, mm-hmm. like or I understood that it was a little bit more nebulous. It was a little bit more like that intangible space of like the energy that I provided, yeah. like the persona that I am or something like that. And I am sort of just like giving up on that because yeah. it's like, nobody wants to think too hard. Like we should be doing the thinking for the audiences. Honestly. Like I think a lot about why, um, the the pov of a joke and like what in society is recognizable in it and and why people are comfortable laughing at it and 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 like what is surpri- how to surprise an audience i think surprise is like one of the most important elements of writing a really good joke is not seeing where the conclusion is going and that 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 sort of turn at the end is really important um and like i think we should absolutely be thinking about that but at the end of the day like it's all happening so fast for audiences That in the moment, especially live, it's like you don't want someone thinking too much about it. You just want that gut check of, like, oh, they're
1: laughing. Let's take a break for a second from the comedy to be so very serious. Look, if I know you, which I do, I know you've been frustrated with your phone service. We've all been there. So I've got some honestly pretty cool news for you there's a new phone service out called Visible. Long story short, you got unlimited everything, including data, at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network. For, dramatic pause, 40 bucks a month. Dun, dun, dun. There are no annual contracts, no hidden fees, and no stores. That's right, you never have to walk into a phone store again. Thank God I hate stores. Learn more at Visible.com. You... You used to have jokes about your appearance. I remember yeah. your album ended with something it's so like, so
0: "Great, I, we're kind of coming to the end of our time together," um, which I'm sad about. I know, but there's only so much time you can stand to, to look at me.
1: Um, so I want to. And you, you've described your persona now as a hot idiot, and we'll talk a little bit more about yeah. being hot later. But um, <laughs> not to get all Nanette, but sort of why, <laughs> why is and why self-deprecate oh my God. at all? On stage? Um, it is
0: so um unfortunate that I I do reference Nanette is um, not I made this change before Nanette but she did um, articulate it in a way that sort of made me realize oh that's what I that's why I changed to because like um, you know I'm in a very toxic uh, subculture of the society, gay men, like the male gaze is on me too. You know, I'm one of the many men who's lucky enough to feel that, uh, pressure, uh, in a way that a lot of straight men probably don't feel, um, you know, my, um, and, um, I've struggled a lot with, body image issues and and feeling good about myself both because of the way that Asian American men are sort of viewed and it's all connected to masculinity as well and like all of that stuff is like was a stew of bad things I have terrible skin you know like all of this is like was a part was like running in the background especially in my early 20s when I started doing stand-up and it's easy I think especially when I was coming into it as like oh everything's got to be raw and real yeah you know like (laughs) that was for a time like everything I on stage has to be like the uh, you know the truth and the and confronting and like let's hold up mirror up to society sort of bullshit and um that's fair and i think like when i was doing that um at the beginning like it made sense for me then but then slowly as i you know in therapy and just sort of on my own did a lot of work on myself and a lot of work on like my self-esteem and like i i think it just became unhealthy for me because it wasn't it no longer became authentic it was like I was like talking down about myself in a way that just like didn't feel real and then here's the other thing is that I think for me creatively because I don't I am not as confident as the person I portray myself to be on stage or on the internet Bar Like I still have a lot of fucked up things going on in my head that I have to deal with on a daily basis as we all do. I don't think it's as interesting for most people to hear about because I know that conventionally I am attractive. And so like who wants to hear that person complain about (laughs) the neuroses in their head. But I also think creatively it's a more interesting choice right now anyways in comedy because yeah. we've just like everyone every comedian is ugly and talks about being ugly like it just like it and like or being like uh, in terms of like the power dynamic between myself and an audience like this is a uh, pride myself on being able to walk that line of you need the audience and i think for so long like, especially minority comedians, Asian comedians, gay comedians, both of those com- s- sort of subsets needed to put themselves below the audience in a way in order so that they could feel comfortable to laugh. And for me to come out and be like, I'm better than you. That's a harder position to come from, yeah. to get an audience on your side, to get an o- to walk out on stage and be like, I'm the shit. And you guys are f- should be lucky to feel <laughs> to be looking at me right now. Like that is aggressive and gross and and bad and yet to to it's a it's a much it's sort of it's a carlin-esque sort of like for me anyway school of thought of like can i turn the audience against me and then at the end of the set still have them on my side
1: is the stupidity of it then like a release valve of that
0: absolutely it is a it's a it's a balancing act because then they can sort of i think like condescend a little bit to me because the other thing i should say is that like people who like are on the bandwagon of like oh my god you're so hot it does occasionally feel a little condescending because i'm like okay i'm not like i i (laughs) like hot for what yeah uh, like hot for an x person i think is is what i sometimes get is is sort of behind the curtain of some of my compliments online and i'm very aware of that but yeah the stupidity is the balance of that is that like if i can if they think that I am too stupid to realize that I'm not actually that hot then like it works out a little bit in my favor
1: so uh, gay dads is next this is the first time in your set where you say that you're gay yeah. yeah is that on purpose or what what
0: um no you know it's not something that I think about a, a lot anymore mm-hmm. um it was definitely sort of um something that I thought about a, a lot In that first cycle, I guess, like after dropping my first album and like I am I talk about my life and I talk about gay issues because it's prevalent in my life and it's it's there. And of course, like I was told early on, like I needed to tamp that down and I needed to make it broad and blah, blah, blah. For me, like this is just a really good, tight joke. Yeah. Um, And. I think um, it's a, it's sort of a difficult joke too. There was, you know, I did this joke and I gave up on this joke for a while. This was like one of the first new jokes I wrote after I dropped my album and I was trying to write this new hour, and I. Gave up on it because I could not get anyone to get on board with it. And you know what's funny about human psychology and I guess like progress, the progressive nature of audiences these days is the thing that turned it was when I started saying, and it sucks because we're so much better at it. That was the key to unlocking this joke for me because I would go in and I'd be like, yeah, I don't think gay people should be raising kids. (laughs) Uh, Gay men especially were put here as population control, blah, 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 blah. And like people would get really turned off, and yeah. I think they still do a little bit. But then I say that, and that again is the the release valve. I think because then people are like, it signals to them like, oh no, he this is this is woke. He's still woke. Like he's <laughs> yeah. not he's not a bigot. Like he, you know, this where it's okay for us to laugh at the rest of this. Yeah, I, I f- think
1: I what I found really interesting about it. So you came up in stand up comedy at a time where, like, people were doing gay marriage material. Most people were doing pro-gay marriage material, but, like, no gay comedian was like, why do we want to get married? Like, that stuff, that really... Everyone was like, a collective front. We need to be like, gay marriage is good. What is interesting with this joke, and I think I hear a little bit more... Like, John Early does some stuff about this, which is it, like, directly confronts a certain sort of, like, gay as gay respectability presentation. Like, why what does it mean for i guess society or your comedy (laughs) that this is now like you can take this stance of being like okay now that we got these rights i mean it is a it's a it's an absolutely
0: like sort of a privilege of my of the generation of gay men that i i'm in right now too i think um because like and it's a reflection i think of of my politics as well like i'm not ardently like and like aggressively like gay marriage it shouldn't be legal It shouldn't but i was i was always one of those you know uh, annoying people on the internet where it was like what about in housing protections and employment protections before this other thing yeah. that because those things are things that affect all of us and like a lot of my jokes boiled start from this place were of like obnoxious like um, political stances that I, <laughs> very important to me. And I'm like, how can I water this down into something stupid? Yeah, <laughs> And that the gay dad's thing is like something that I said, cause I did, I mean, this was something I think I said at, on the gay beach in New York, because these two guys brought their, their twins, same mom, same surrogate, same eggs, different sperm each and, and both born at the same time. Yeah, And I'm like, this is I I guess great for them. I'm so happy for them. And also this is ridiculous. And they're at the gay beach and like, just like sort of, it it was like a moment where, and I said to, I leaned over to my friend and I was like, those guys misunderstood the assignment um, completely because this is not it. Um, And like, it's judgment. And uh, at the end of the day, I don't give a shit, like do whatever the fuck you want. But um, that is sort of the, the, the culmination of that. And then I was like trying to think, Pushing myself, to, I, there was like a moment in my life where I was like really pushing myself to do more analogies on stage.
1: <laughs> well, this Cause I was, I, I,
0: it's so funny because I was like,
1: is this his first big
0: metaphor? Yeah, I don't, I'm not that comedian, and yet, um, I think especially because I was feeling a, a really neurotic after the album came out and I was touring, and I was like, I don't want to be touring on this hour anymore I think partially because I was bored of a lot of that material and partially because I was like I had a lot of delusions that most of the audience had heard the album which is I can assure you not the case I I could probably still do half the material from that album and people would think it was brand fucking new because nobody bought that album and I think so for me that was like a period where I was like I gotta sit down and like really push myself to write a metaphor joke and that was sort of where I landed and it's good I'm glad I did maybe I should drop more albums and feel more neurotic
1: about that but um that's <laughs> I, sort of where it is you mentioned that is it comes at a time where you assume the audience might know this is you mentioned your dad and you said your dad has two sons and it's you do not post the early set knowledge that you're adopted do you find yourself like allowing the audience not to have to know everything about everything for you to tell the joke is that sort of what is born out of i mean like or you're sort of like well that part of me is already in the story uh, it just wasn't. I I'm an editor
0: at at heart, and for me, like thinking, especially getting all of this in in five minutes, I was like, um, for that joke to be funny, they don't need to know X. Yeah. Um, when I do that joke in my hour when I'm touring, there's a there's there's moments where it's set up, but honestly, it's the deepest frustration of my life because I feel like I will constantly have to write a new version. I have a, I literally have a new joke about my name right now. That I do, uh, that I throw in to explain my goofy name, and it's like it'll never be better than that first one. Yeah. But uh, for so, but it's like I, it is something weird. It is something about me, and I for a while was like, maybe I can get away with never mentioning. It. And it's like, nah. Like they need to, they need to know that my pam- my mom is white for a lot of these jokes yeah. to work or make sense. Yeah. Um, and so. It's like the never-ending writing exercise for me is writing jokes about like that that are very quick and simple to just like get that in there. Yeah. But for that, I was like, ah, eh, they don't need to know uh, that it's it's not a part of it.
1: The next part is you uh, being murdered by the strangers. <laughs> um, so there's yeah. a change there, which is uh, the line after because my thing is if I'm being murdered, I'm still being picked. Change from uh, I don't do well with rejection to and this is ultimately. Uh, the point, to, and ultimately, that's the point of dating. Either way, you get to stop. Yeah. What does that change of the joke mean? Um, I think for me, it was a,
0: a, a economy of words. Yeah. At the end of the day, because I'm very like, I don't know, like I just like to the the thing about New York. Um, that that is something that was born in me in New York because like in Chicago most open mics you get three to five minutes and so which is not a lot of time but it is still enough time to like sort of feel your oats a little bit on stage and and especially for someone like me who writes on stage it was really easy for me to just sort of like tell and wander around a bit in New York I'm waiting two hours to do 90 seconds of material every single night three times a night and when you are only doing you know like uh, what is it like four and a half minutes of material every night um you get you learn really quickly where the three or four seconds actually does matter a lot um and so for me i think that was just like again like always always finding places to cut always finding places to get to the joke a little bit faster or make it clearer i think it
1: either way you get picked is is um sort of a clear image for me the the guacamole joke which you uh (laughs) You've said you do not remember, but I think the most interesting part or the, it is your most performed joke. What do you mean? It's a lot, not you, you're moving a lot. There's a lot of dynamics, vocal dynamics. Was there a conscious decision like I need you to do more types of things? This is where I really,
0: um, I remember this moment actually in New York when I wrote this bit. It is a more a joke about me being funny than it is a joke on paper that works really yeah. well. And it's it, it is, is your joke. most
1: personality. Yes, joke.
0: it is a joke that only I can do and 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 get away with, <laughs> like. <laughs> and or there are there are other people. Like I actually think like. I was watching a lot of John and Jacqueline. John Early and Jacqueline Novak yeah. had a show at the time at Cake Shop and they and I was doing a residency. at the, They They did this goofy. It was a weekly show and every month they would let one comedian do 15 minutes every week for four weeks. And so I would go and I was like watching. Jacqueline Novak is like, she's top three for me in terms of like people that I look up to and, and like uh, it, it's just so funny and it's hard to capture what is funny about her. Again, I don't know I don't know. It's just like, and so I was really un- influenced by that. I yeah. think uh, sort of style of like, you know, people, it is like, a it, it hits something inside of them that is recognizable. And yet it, it is not something that they can sort of intellectually, uh, uh, explain why it's, it's funny. Yeah. And so for that joke, I think requires a few more like bells and whistles performance wise. And that is sort of where, I landed and and um, it's funny because the I actually rewrote this joke never had an ending. This joke was certainly never supposed to be a closer. Yeah, when I was doing it on the road and stuff like that. And um, best selling is actually the one who told me. <laughs> that she said, "If I wrote a better ending to
1: it, it could be a closer." <laughs> well, so active. Yeah, um, and which the- I think the closer, which is, and I didn't get a second date, is the ending of that. Yeah, that's yeah. why i'm surprised well, that, you didn't have an ending yeah
0: that i actually don't normally say on the road that is just for cordon that was just to sort of like put have a button, a button yeah. on the, the cordon the lava kick bit is what i yeah it's st- a big when you know, i was like oh i guess i should put this at the end of a late night set because it is a, qu- a clean joke yeah it's like one of the f- i i knew that it was something that could get in on tv i was like i need to write a better end uh, like uh, sort of a second part of the joke yeah. that never existed before. I, in fact, do I do that in the Melbourne set too? Do I do the guacamole bit in no. Melbourne? Okay. Um, but anyway, I was like, yeah, this this joke needs that, and so like I spent the, like three weeks before the Corden set before I um, writing that part of the joke to the, try and make it more complete.
1: Your your first Conan ha- is a it's a very like this is who I am, this is my story yeah, type of yeah. set. The Corden set is more like, this is what I'm like. This is how I think. You know, what do you feel like this set communicated to the audience?
0: It's it it's like a good encapsulation of, like, the persona now. Yeah. You know, like, it is like I'm moving away from the identity. I don't want to say I'm moving away from the identity stuff because it's still all running in the background. But it is less biographical, I think, now in a lot of ways. Or it's less, it's more... It's much more heightened, yeah, biographically than it is. Like, I Key and Peel said this thing um, uh, to Zadie Smith when when they had their show that like really stuck with me. Um, and it is so the ethos of like the way I write jokes now is that people laugh at the mythologies that they recognize to be false, and like that is like a very um, fancy way of talking about hyperbole. Yeah, so that is i i i usually like go back to that quote and go back to that frame of mind when i'm thinking about something that's funny cuz like it's it's partially just stuff shit that i say to my friends that makes them laugh yeah. that i don't and that does not even ping to me as a joke until i see someone laugh at it and then i'm like okay how can i take this sort of un this like weird like unformed thing and then i take it to the stage and just sort of rehave that conversation but with a con- with an audience and then i'm like how can i mythologize this concept and that is where the punchline comes so like the setups that make people laugh or stuff that starts in conversation and then I mythologize it and that's the punchline and and that is really most of those jokes are the product of
1: that of just of, of that way of writing a joke I think we'll be back with more Joel Kim booster after this word from our sponsor okay I want to talk a little bit more about this new phone service called visible see a lot of phone services these days are a bit sneaky Not unlike John Turturro's character in Mr. Deeds. They tack on hidden fees to your phone bill and hope you don't notice. Not Visible. With Visible, you get unlimited everything, including data at speeds up to 5 megabits per second on Verizon's 4G LTE network for just 40 bucks a month. Flat. Every time. That's it. Transparency is like their whole deal. No tricks, no shenanigans, no BS. Which I gotta say is uh, pretty chill. If you want to learn more, check out Visible.com. Now, back to the show. We are back with Joel Kimbooster. We talked about it a little bit, but I, uh, let's talk about being hot. <laughs> okay. I should note uh, that as you talk about, you were good looking before yeah. you sort of, what we're talking about when the idea of Joel Kimbooster as a hot person is. I feel like Pat Regan said it best, which is a porn quality body. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's psycho. To that is actually psycho to me
0: because I, I, I was literally just said to my trainer today. I think part of my body dysmorphia comes from the fact that I'm watching porn every day. <laughs> and like, because he was he's a straight man. And I was like, you don't have to deal with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's one of the things that sets us apart. I will say this about like making this a part of the persona and part of the act is that it started as like a political statement about like Asian men specifically. Mm -hmm. I think like I started saying it before I really believed it sometimes because I was like, you know, we're clowns, we're emasculated, we're seen as less desirable. And I was like, fuck that, let's, and so, it, and it only works because people believe that. Because people do believe that. And that's the fucked up thing about me like, centering my hotness on stage is that it really truly only works because i'm coming from not from a place of privilege like yeah fuck matt broussard can't do that i mean he does do that because he is forced to because he is everyone recognizes him to be hot but yes. when i walk out on stage and i say i know i'm hot and it's annoying for you to hear about it half the audience has to check themselves and be like yeah. Yes, It you becomes are.
1: subversive, even though it.
0: Should've. Yeah. Yeah. And and so like, unfortunately, like until society looks at me the same way they look at Matt Broussard. Yeah. It it, it it's it for me. It's fu- it's still funny, and it's it's sort of sad in that way. And then the other thing is, is I think my actual physical hotness is maybe caught up with the bit a little bit <laughs> because it like fitness. Is like this the more successful I've gotten, the less control I've had over my life. And Mm -hmm. this feels like one very easy thing that I can control about my life. Like when I had a day job and I was doing stand up and touring, it was like that felt very regimented. And like I love a nine to five schedule and I love knowing what I'm going to be doing every day. And
1: and not having that is very hard on someone with my brain. So, I mean, there's been. quote-unquote, hot comedians. And we feel like we grew up at the same time of, like, Dane Cook, part of his thing was that he presented as, like, I'm a sexualized person. But um, you've talked about, like, Guy Branum has the thing about gay men either, like, go-go boys or drag queens because they're either entirely sexualized or entirely desexualized. I've talked to John Early about sort of the difficulty of gay men watching gay comedians where they don't know if they're just sexualized versus female comedians where they can just laugh at it. Considering that, you know, what does it mean what is that line that you have to walk as sort of like presenting yourself as hot in that hmm. way?
0: Yeah. I think, well, a is the thing that we were talking about of like, you know, especially in front of gay audiences. And I'm like, yeah, I'm hot. Like half of them chuckle because I think they think it's a joke because they don't think I'm hot. Yeah, And like, and I'm fine. And I'm, if I'm, I'm fine with that. In fact, that's I, again, I know I can get away with it because I know that that's parsh That's 50% of the reaction. But I think like, with the game with gay audiences especially it's difficult I think because we and it's changing it's definitely changing because I, I I have so many gay men that come in uh to my uh to my shows and I think it's because I'm speaking in a way that isn't like presentation it's like I'm talking about gay shit for uh, uh gay people yeah and I'm not trying to like Talk about gay shit for straight people, and I think that is something that gay comedian a trap that a lot of gay comedians before have sort of fallen into. And it's and the thing is, is like aesthetically, it's not that different. Like I'm still talking about sex, and I'm still talking about, and I'm I present I am I am a stereotypical gay man on a lot of fronts, you know, um, and I'm not trying to change that about myself. But the thing is, is about like it, it's not about um, like, oh, I shouldn't uh, like X, Y, or Z. Like, Jack is not uh, a bad character of a gay man because he's a stereotype. It's because he's only, a, it's a yeah. two-dimensional thing. Yeah. And it's like, I think there's enough in my set and enough about my sort of what I'm presenting and putting out there that it feels three-dimensional because the thing is is like gay stereotypes exist because a lot of us do like fucking (sighs) pop music and a lot of us are big old sluts and a lot of us are frivolous and this and that and the other thing but there's we also have inner lives yeah and like I think like I'm sort of deepening that in a way and I'm very proud that like I'm I you know like there's if you don't Recognize that yourself in me. I think that's the problem with like a lot of gay audiences is that we grew up having to queer other people's stories yeah. and like find ourselves in Muriel's wedding. Or like these other like sort of iconically quote unquote queer films that aren't actually gay, but we just made them gay movies because we were able to queer the narratives of those of those movies and put ourselves in uh, the the closest thing that we could find to uh, telling our stories were these these movies starring women. And now I am walking out on stage and I am standing there and I'm saying explicitly like I am telling a gay story. And they're like, that's not my story though. And so it's very hard, I think, when there isn't the sort of gray areas to sort of fill in our own blanks to, to project our own parts of ourselves onto these like queer near like movies or television or me as a stand-up it becomes like it there's like an automatic like er, like that's yeah. not me i can't recognize that but i think i'm trying what i'm i'm really really trying is to split the difference between like being like i am representing all gay men which i am definitely not yeah and just allowing space for people to for me to be like, I am an individual who also is gay, and it's okay. And like, if people think that we're all like me, that's not a problem for the community. That's a problem for the world writ large, who can't, who
1: has no imagination. In in between the, the Conan set and the Corden set, I was thinking about the sort of new, an exposure to gay audiences that maybe did not exist in certain ways in so much as one, which is sort of how Brooklyn and now I imagine east, east part of LA, that scene has become way more gay than you would ever imagine, even like five years ago, four years yeah. ago. Um, it is incredible. It's one of the great comedic things I've ever seen, how this change has shifted, where there are gay audiences. And then also you start doing gay cruises, yeah. which is a, a different audience, which is sort of... And like gay cruises are cruises in general are seen as sort of this like lower brow thing what has both of those sort of done to you as a comedian well the cycle is has been so quick right like the cycle has been so quick because there was a
0: time when like we were only allowed to do gay cruises and gay shows yeah and there was like two circuits there were two communities like these like gay comedians that a lot of people saw as hack and because and they saw them that way because the references were so um, only for gay people yeah. and they couldn't play in front of street audiences and and I don't see that as a lesser thing it was just like they were playing to their community and that's dope and then the cycle became like I'm a gay comedian, but I play straight rooms. And like, that was sort of seen as like, okay, that's better. And now I'm like, I feel very like lucky that we're, there's like this, all this bridging of the gap of like the audiences are, are sort of merging. And it's not that um, the co- comedy audiences change. It's just that the comedy audience has gotten bigger. Yeah, And like, I think that's what you're seeing a lot of like resistance from like m- mainstream, like straight boy, like big Jay Oakerson, like assholes who are like the comedy audiences are getting like more PC or yeah. lamer or less like apt to laugh or something like that and it's like no dude you just have to share <laughs> like they're your you, those that that audience that laughs that laughs at, at Asians have small dick jokes they still are out there and they still exist it's yeah. just now there's a larger um,
1: group of, of comedy literate people so what does it mean for your comedy to you have had these now audiences emerge for you <laughs> Um, I don't, uh,
0: it's, it's interesting. I feel a little bit more comfortable, like, um, splitting the difference referentially. Like there are, there are a million jokes that I wish I could make about poppers and like, uh, you know, sh- like gay bars and shit like that, that I just think no people in Boise don't, don't know, you yeah. know, but I've always, there's always like little Easter eggs in my jokes that are just for the people that will get them. And I've never been, con- I've never been concerned about like. Oh, like, don't talk about that because like that will alien talking about eating ass is going to alienate blah, 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 like people in in the Midwest at these clubs in Bloomington, Indiana. And it's like, no, I'm going to I'm going to do that. I'm going to make sure that there's enough there that everyone can laugh at. But there's going to be something that is special for the people in my community because that's where I'm coming from. And that's what I want to do. And Yeah. And that's, I, I will one very quickly, I just want to say it's very frustrating to me when I see people criticism of my work being like, oh, another gay comedian that only talks about sex. And it's like, I don't see myself that way. I see myself as a sex comedian in the same way yeah. that Dane Cook was a sex comedian yeah. in the same way that Nikki um, uh, Glazier is a is a, a comedian that talks a lot about sex. And the same way that Lisa fucking Lampanelli talked about sex, you know, like there's a whole class like I don't. I put myself in that <laughs> yeah. category of com- of just comedian, Big C, and it's frustrating that they think it has anything to do with me being gay. If I were a straight man
1: with this personality, I would be talking about sex just as much. You know, you've talked early on about People in Chicago would be like, oh, you're just telling gay jokes or whatever, even though you're just like, you're like, I'm telling John Mulaney jokes. I'm and t- sort of, yeah, I'm talking about dating and I happen to be gay. So in, uh, in 2016, you wrote on Medium after the Pulse nightclub shootings. Um, oh,
0: <laughs> I can't believe you found my Medium.
1: <laughs> I found I found a lot of stuff. Uh, but you wrote, I, I wear the gay comedian label with pride in the same way I do a uh, word that I won't say that starts with the letter F. F? okay. <laughs> <laughs> I know you're likely, or in the case of the latter, definitely trying to say something hurtful, but all I hear is, better at art. But as a comedian, that sort of balance, doing these jokes in Corden, and doing these jokes in Gay Cruises, and Brooklyn, and then being on NBC. At this point now, what does it mean in 2019, 2020, whatever, what does it mean now for you to be a quote-unquote gay comedian? It's a paradigm shift, I think, because here's the thing, like, I think about it in terms of like the gay section
0: of Netflix and we all sort of it's like the joke that like 90% of those movies are shit but we'll watch them you know because that's what we get and I think about it the same in the cruises is and I would like to say I would like to shout out specifically Brad locally who was the first comedian I ever opened for in Chicago um, who has who does every single Atlantis gay cruise and is one of the best comedians I've ever had the privilege of working with. So so funny. And if he were my age, if he would come up at the same time as me, he would be a huge fucking star. And it is a, a, a damn shame that he is of a different generation. And I, uh, you know, and he still has time. I don't know why I'm talking about <laughs> him like he's de- dying, but he's so yeah. great. But um, and I, and I want to separate Brad from that because there is there are cruise ship comedians and gay comedians. Cause I think there, there's this idea that like, because our community for so long would accept hack shit. That is what, That We we should, you know, you work to the audience's level. Yeah, And it's like, no, like, here's the thing. If you want to say, like, that guy's a gay comedian, I know I'm fucking great at what I do. I know I travel around this goddamn planet and I make people of all fucking walks of life laugh. And so if that can shift the paradigm and suddenly the idea of going to the gay section of Netflix means you're looking at high quality movies like yeah. and changing and, and re- removing that stigma, then God bless. Like, yeah, I'm going to go on that fucking cruise ship because a, it's a, it's a free vacation for me <laughs> and I have a good ass time. And B those people on those and cru- that cruise ship deserve cerebral well-thought-out <laughs> yeah. jokes just as much as the next person. They don't need to hear another joke about the fucking cafeteria workers on the boat, you know, yeah. like, just because they're on a cruise ship. And and that is sort of where I'm at from It's like, I think, I think there's a lot of comedians I can think of who are like, I don't want to go and do that show at that gay bar because they only want to hear uh, drag queen humor. And it's like, no, go into that gay bar and give those people the same fucking good ass shit that you're going to put on, uh, yeah. you know, in a comedy club. And they will rise to that because they <laughs> the gay people are smart, too. <laughs> yeah. And so that for me is what that really means. Is that like, yeah, I, I just want to shift that paradigm a little bit. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that sound means it's time for our final segment which is the laughing round it's like a lightning round but because it's comedy it's a laughing round <laughs> <laughs> thank you uh, is there a joke you'd like to steal in a way that no one would know you stole it but you can sort of have it it's a sort of different dimension everything's the same except for you have this person's joke it's yours it's always been yours
0: oh my god I mean I can tell you really quickly three people who would fit in that realm and it would be uh, Naomi X Perrigan Jacqueline Novak and and um, and John Early for sure I, I, just because it of the quickness, and it, she's fresh in my mind. Naomi's um, Stop Jogging at Dusk and Dawn. <laughs> oh, God, she's the funniest person. Yeah. She's, Naomi Experian is so, is so, so funny. The Megan, Lindsay's Sarah's You Gotta Stop Jogging at Dusk and Dawn is something
1: that I would steal and take with my own in a, in a heartbeat. Your play, Kate and Sam, are not breaking up. It's currently selling on Amazon for... $1,500. That is not true. Yeah. the only You can only buy it, like, someone has two used copies and they're selling it for one thousand. That is so fucking
0: funny. If you're
1: listening to this and you want to read that play,
0: email me. I'll send you a fucking Google <laughs> doc with it, because you don't need to spend $1,000 on that play. That's so funny. I did know that the people who published it originally went under. Um, I had no idea that someone was selling um, them. That's so funny.
1: Yeah, that was it. I just wanted to let you know that oh, that thank was, you. It was insane. Uh, Can you do an impression of yourself? Uh, That's uh, between every joke.
0: Uh, uh, And like a lot of you knows and likes and ums. Um,
1: That's the only thing I hear when I listen to myself. Do you have a joke that doesn't work? You can never get an audience to laugh at it, but you'll go to your grave thinking it's funny. Uh, <laughs> a, uh, a few
0: <laughs> what is one um one that i have that is i had to start doing the revolving door of, of strangers joke that is in the court in one right now and this actually this has maybe a 40 or 35 success rate and it is for the people is that um oh i'm on the apps all the time and i'm uh when i'm traveling and and uh i'll invite people over from the apps and my friends get Nervous, And so the first thing I always do when I get to a new town is Google to see if there have been a rash of disappearing gay men. For one, because I don't want to get murdered. And also because I can't help solve another mystery. (laughs) I'm there to to work. Okay. But I will crack the case. And that's the joke. And I think it happens so fast sometimes that people are like, wait, what? But again, it is like this mythology of me as like a gay detective is so funny to me. That image. But yeah, it never works. I always do it though.
1: All right. Interview over. Okay. That's it for this week's episode. You can watch Joel Kim Booster's late-night sets on YouTube or listen to his album, Model Minority, wherever you stream or download. You'll be able to watch Sunnyside on NBC this fall. Follow Joel on Twitter at IHateJoelKim. Good one is producing Mike Commentay with production assistance from Marissa Melnick and research help from Matthew Silver. Justin D. Wright did our theme song. Write a review, and rate the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. And hey, if you know anyone who might like the podcast, maybe tell them. What the heck. You can email any comments, questions, or laughing around suggestions to GoodOnePodcast at gmail.com. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. We'll be back next week with a new episode and a new joke. Have a good one. That was a HeadGum Podcast.